The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, coming to you from my home in Zurich, Switzerland. This week, we will board the magic carpet and visit Bombay, Brooklyn, and London to visit with three Breaking Views columnists. First up is Yuna Galani, our India editor, to discuss that rare commodity of the COVID-19 era, a multi-billion dollar cross-border deal. That would be Facebook's purchase of a near $6 billion stake in Reliance Industries' digital arm. Not only is it a rare deal, it comes as India is reassessing the sources of foreign direct investment. That's code for basically asking whether it wants Chinese capital. Next, we're going to visit with George Hay, who's been writing about all the weird shizzle taking place in the global oil markets. West Texas crude went to negative territory earlier in the week. That's weird. It's a fluke. But the outlook for crude, what it means for producers, global economies, and geopolitics is a huge matter for the world. Finally, Anna Shemansky and I will discuss the U.S. Treasury's Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP, which is a scheme to help small businesses continue to pay workers during the coronavirus lockdowns. The original slug of $349 billion went quickly and not without a bit of controversy. Anna and I discuss where the next $320 billion, which was appropriated by Congress this week, will flow. Happy listening. Hello, Mumbai. Hi, Unikalani. How are things in India? Lockdown lovely. <laughs> People really are uh, abiding by the rules still in Mumbai. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit mixed, to be honest. In, in certain areas, it's uh, and, and particularly surprisingly in the rural areas, it's very uh, well uh, adhered to. And then when you sort of get to some of the sort of slightly poor urban areas, I mean, people are just sort of wandering around as if it's a normal day, which is a little bit worrying. And what about your tea walla and all those kinds of folks? Are you still are, are people delivering? Is it is there some commerce going on? No, and that is the really scary thing. So people like that who sort of like just serve on the roadside, you know, they depend on their daily income and then you shut them down for sort of well now it's we're going into we will be having a six-week lockdown in total i mean that's a really really long time i've had a few phone calls of asking for help already i mean it's uh it's just very real pushing people who can ordinary ordinarily make an income into poverty and that's just very worrying yeah how do you actually get food and stuff like that do you go out or is it delivered what's what's how does it work in mumbai Okay, so I mean, it really depends on sort of who you're talking about. But if you think about the sort of the middle classes, I mean, this is a really interesting time because everyone is sort of waking up to online grocery deliveries, which is, you know, like a 0.2% of the retail market here and is is growing very fast, judging by the amount of orders I've made in the last sort of few weeks. So, so there are there are ways to do that. But I can also just walk to the shops and get some supplies. But, you know, it's not like elsewhere where people are kind of going out for a run and you know, doing their daily exercise and their long walk. You're not really supposed to be out for those reasons. Yeah. Well, but still, business is still happening. I mean, I want to talk to you about a couple of stories that you've written in the last week. The more recent one is that Facebook has closed in on this deal, I think $5.7 billion purchase of a stake, almost 10% stake in a Reliance Industries subsidiary. This had been mooted for, I don't know, a couple of weeks. We knew this was there were these discussions, but they've come in and done it. I mean, that's I'm just trying to think where else have we seen five, you know, six billion dollar M&A transactions across borders in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis? 
Nowhere. Oh. And I think this is a really, really interesting and welcome boost, uh, sort of vote of confidence in India and the power of the Indian consumer to sort of survive this horrible lockdown and, and what that's doing to incomes. It's totally crushing consumer income. So the fact that Facebook is coming in and investing in this sort of digital unit of Mukesh Ambani's at a valuation that was pretty much in line with what they had before the whole pandemic. It's just remarkable. It's fantastic. So wait, explain the deal a little bit. So it's it geo in, it's it's a subsidiary of Reliance, which is and Mukesh Ambani is like the richest man in well in India and, and many other places. Yeah. So I mean, Reliance is a sort of a oil to retail conglomerate. It has its sort of fingers in many pies. But one of its sort of newest and sort of most exciting businesses at the moment is a digital services business, which includes a mobile phone operator, which has, you know, basically acquired almost 400 million users in just three and a half years, which is extraordinary. And, you know, knocked the competition out of the park and is now doing everything from payments to retail, very much on the lines of those sort of super apps that you're seeing in parts of Asia and, you know, that originated in China, that sort of that flavor is really coming out of reliance. So Facebook is essentially putting 10% stake getting a 10% stake in that business. And the pair will work together probably first to kind of boost the sort of retail ambitions of Ambani, like connecting these small mom and pop stores that we were just talking about to consumers like me so I can get groceries more easily. And then ultimately, who knows, but they could really partner together to do some extraordinary things in India because WhatsApp, which is the, you know, the Facebook messaging app, is wildly popular here. And it's, India is the biggest market for WhatsApp globally. So when you put WhatsApp well, with this sort of like retail commerce venture powered by India's richest man, so you're going to have something like, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the super app. What we're really talking about is WeChat and that kind of thing. So if you were in China, you can use it for everything, buy everything, communicate with everybody. It's like WhatsApp, it's PayPal, it's your investment, your bank, everything thrown into one app. And, and essentially it's, who is that, Tencent? Is this basically an attempt to, to create a sort of WeChat in India between these two giant operators? It's a possibility, but I think we have to sort of just acknowledge the limitations of this deal. This is a minority stake. WhatsApp isn't committing to work exclusively with Ambani for now. You know, the, the digital landscape here is moving so fast. Everything is up for grabs. Literally everyone is here trying to get a slice of the pie. You've got Amazon, Walmart-owned Flipkart, Tencent, Alibaba have backed a bunch of local entities as well. So, you know, it's a real food fight. And I think that essentially Facebook and sort of Reliance have given themselves a chance to do some really interesting things in the future. And for now, I think they'll just probably focus on this sort of smaller idea of connecting like small mom and pop stores. You and you've written a bit about how India is kind of like this proxy war between the big guys. So you mentioned Walmart, even Amazon, you have uh, Alibaba, you have Tencent. Well, now you have Facebook. Why is it? Well, I mean, it's sort of interesting. This isn't taking It's not taking place in the States, say, or Europe. It's not taking place in China, um, which are sort of relatively close. It's I mean, how does it how do Indians feel? I guess they're 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 enjoying it. I mean, why else would you get five point seven billion dollars of cash in the middle of a bloody pandemic if people weren't trying, you know, like like crazy to use your country, your market as a battleground? 
I mean, I think the reason that this is happening in India is just is, is quite simple. Is that India is a capital scarce country and depends on foreign capital to finance all sorts of deficits and to propel investment. And I think that, you know, until now, it's really been fairly evenly split between American capital coming in and Chinese capital coming in. And it makes sense. I mean, Chinese companies like Alibaba and Tencent, they're looking for the next big China. And in many ways, in terms of sort of a large, fast growing consumer market quickly coming online, and in many ways, India fits the bill and is a huge opportunity for them as growth slows at home. But, you know, it's interesting, particularly interesting that this deal is happening just a few days after Well, that's India. what I wanted to ask you about, you know, because we talk, you talk about India being a capital starved place. And you generally, in many cases, you say, well, beggars can't be choosers. And I don't mean that in some pejorative way, but that's the old expression that capital, when it comes, you take it. Um, and yet earlier this week, you had this directive, I don't know what you call it, from the Modi government effectively saying, oh, we want capital, but certain capital we're less keen on. Which capital is that, Yuna? Well, I mean, they want to more tightly police Chinese capital. Now, what India has said is that all foreign direct investment now coming into the country from any nations and entities that share land borders with India will be subject to review. Right, but it's um, like the, Nepal is going to come in and buy Indian right. uh, infrastructure or uh, Pakistan or Bangladesh. No, and, then so, and so the Indian policy, I mean, like some of these other policies that have been springing up all over the world against the Great Wall of Chinese capital is essentially countries don't want to name China, but these sort of barriers to capital are coming up um, and they are quite targeted at China. So Australia has has tightened up its foreign investment rules. India has done it. Italy has done it all in the aftermath of this pandemic. And, and none of them are sort of naming China specifically. India has had to be particularly careful to, to design its policy so that people like Facebook can still come in. And, you know, and, and so I think that's, it's a delicate dance that's sort of going on here at the moment. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange. I mean, there's a concern, there's sort of almost this fear, you see it in Western Europe and in the States to some degree, that, oh, well, China is going to come in, you know, while they're ahead of us in the recovery from the coronavirus and their markets rebound, their economy rebounds, they're going to come in and swoop in and buy our, you know, critical infrastructure, our companies. I mean, Italy, you mentioned, has put forward a whole series of, of industries that are off limits, as it were. And it is not specifically against China, but it now creates these barriers that are that seem quite clearly designed to keep Chinese predators from coming in. Yeah, and if you look at, I mean, it's an interesting sort of the gap between reality and perception. I mean, people are very fearful that China is recovering first and will come in and make opportunistic purchases. Many of the countries making these tweaks to their policy already have quite thorny and tricky uh, financial relationships and dependencies uh, with China, which they have long wanted to correct anyway, and they didn't need much of a nudge to act. But, you know, China is not the biggest source of FDI for many of these countries. I mean, most of the FDI into Australia over the last five years has been from other countries. And, you know, in India, it accounts for like less than a couple of percent of FDI over the last two decades. So the dynamic is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, look, I'm going to let you get back to your ordering your chai wala guy to bring you something or whatever it is that you do to Keep yourself healthy and fit in, in Mumbai. Um, but we'll be back soon with you. Thanks. 
George, hey, you've been about the busiest uh, person at Breaking Views this past week, if not month, um, because in addition to being an editor here and, and locked up wherever you are, somewhere in uh, undisclosed location uh, in London, um, with a little one, uh, you've also been trying to cover, I think what you uh, generously called it as a big fucked market, and that is the oil market. Um, you know, this week's been pretty extraordinary. Lots, lots going on. Why don't you try to kind of frame for us where we are, and then let's try to figure out how much this is related to COVID nineteen and how and where the hell it's going. Right. Well, I mean, as most people would have seen on on Monday, um, U.S. oil prices went negative. Um, that's never happened before, and um, they started off kind of from a, I mean, a, an already pretty bombed out level of around twenty. Uh, dollars a barrel. Um, if you, as a as context, in um, in January they were up at seventy, so they'd already fallen a long way. And um, on Monday they just kind of completely, you know, went through the floor literally. Um, and um, obviously that's, you know, it's unprecedented. Um, and uh, but it. Basically, the key question was is, is is whether that was a kind of technical, you know, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, described it as a, a financial squeeze. It was a kind of like a just trying to kind of big up the idea that it was a technical thing. But so the big question from now on is how technical was it? And um, but know, it was is that it's sort of loss? right. It reflects the fact that there's there's just a glut of oil. We're producing much more than there's demand for, and then there's a question of where you store the stuff, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. The, the, the two things are the supply demand imbalance. Oil is usually a hundred million barrels a day market, um, with supply and demand roughly balanced. Um, the big problem uh, that has been, to be fair, kind of obvious for you know, a couple of months now, really, mm -hmm. is that the effect of um, the COVID-19 uh, virus is that uh, because it's really pretty obvious to everyone that because everyone is locked down in their apartments or wherever they are, uh, people are just using a lot less um, uh, oil, whether in gasoline or however, whatever form. So the, up, the, up, the upshot is that the demand slump could be anything up to from if you're, if you're starting from 100, it could be anything around 70, so like a 30% drop, and um, that is very difficult for anyone, um, anyone in the market, whether they're OPEC, the US, Russia, whoever, to deal with, because it's very difficult to 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 to, to, to balance the market. Of the course, they did try. They did try. There yeah. has been this this OPEC plus um, yeah. brokered so, thing with Donald like, Trump always had the kind of dark inevitability of Greek tragedy about it, that they would, would not be able to actually kind of um, solve what they were, what the problem they were trying to. I mean, effectively, uh, <laughs> where they ended up with the OPEC plus um, uh, agreement, which was uh, OPEC plus is this kind of rather unholy mix of Saudi uh, and the rest of OPEC with Russia and a load of other um, hangers on. Um, they, 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 they basically confronted with this potential 30% drop in demand. And um, there was all sorts of kind of like, you know, brave talk about, you know, we're going to do something about it. We you know we're, we'll sort it out. But effectively, they were always on a kind of hiding to nothing because 
um, I mean Saudi Russia and Saudi Russia and um, and the US between them probably have yeah, they're the biggest producers, but um, you know they're they're kind of in the 35, 40 million uh, barrels a day. So it would, right. <laughs> I mean they were never going to just not produce anything. So uh, it was and it, and effectively we've had these demand um, cut as a supply cut kind of efforts for kind of years and years now and they often tend to be kind of poorly observed by the people who are supposed to be doing them so everyone was pretty everyone who knew what they were talking about was pretty pretty skeptical that it would actually help and um where they've ended up with i mean donald trump says there's 20 million that's been taken out of the market um that is a really ropey number and even if it was totally true, it wouldn't actually, it wouldn't be 30 million. So we're already starting off, you know, heading into Monday, we were already starting off from a position of um, the market has a massive imbalance in it. And why do you say that it's ropey? I mean, just explain that a little bit more. Well, just, I mean. um, it's basically, of the 20 million that Donald Trump is talking about, um, 10 million of that is from OPEC plus. Who actually have a kind of right. um, have a have a background of actually doing co coordinated cuts, so you could kind of give some kind of credibility to that, but you shouldn't give a hundred percent credibility because OPEC Plus in the last um, couple of years you've had some they've they've only been able to meet their supply cut targets by Saudi kind of over delivering in its own and a lot of a lot of other com companies which uh, countries are just not doing it. So you can't just assume that they will definitely do it this time, especially when they're kind of up against it. And the other, the other half of the 20 million was kind of, you know, it, it wasn't really even. It was supposed to be coming from the G20, other members of the G20, and um, there was no specific cuts. They, were, they, they weren't actually given specific numeric cuts to kind of to. So they're aspirational targets rather it was, than. It was and, aspirational. And you can't. You can't depend on them. And then the others, this doesn't come through until May anyway, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's a kind of key supporting strut of what happened on Monday is that um, it's not like the the, the uh, cuts came through immediately. Um, they are only starting in the beginning of May. Therefore, what's happening at the moment um, and has been happening for as long as the COVID um, demand shock has been kind of happening is... Um, that there's been this imbalance, and so all the all that supply that's being produced is just going straight into storage. Um, all the, the the kind of imbalance is going straight into storage, and um, the big problem, and the big problem that really kind of made the market go nuts on Monday is that uh, oil. You know, if you can't if you can't store it, if you can't use it, and you can't store it, then you know it's not. <laughs> Right. you have a bit of a problem because it's where are you going to put it um right so that's yeah so that's everything so so now i mean looking forward we see u.s oil you know west texas intermediate crude uh july contracts up in the 20 dollar a barrel range which is better than where we are with spot or wherever we're this month right yeah um so what's so that telling us is that well, is it like expectation of demand or the the supply cuts coming through? How do you how do you read that? Well, you, the thing the, the things that will kind of solve the problem are 
either COVID-19 being solved or going away is a problem, in which case the demand comes back, or the supply cuts have to kind of be there and be useful. Um, and so, as you said, they're coming in in they're coming in in May, and therefore, um, if you look further down the futures curve, people will think, well, uh, there's going to be less supply, and so the supply glut is going to kind of ease off a bit in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so in, in a sense, that's that's kind of a, a, a positive um, development. But um, right. the the the, the, the kind of so basically it's a bit like kind of um taking a a plaster off basically you can either do it um carefully so it doesn't hurt too much by um doing planned supply cuts or you can rip it off really really quickly and the and the ripping off really quickly thing is what happens if all prices fall fall so low that um everyone who's producing it just goes i, I literally I've got to shut. I've got to stop production right now because right. It's, it's, I'm losing money just operating this this um, drilling exercise. Um, and what the, I mean, you suppose, I suppose the the kind of counterintuitive way of thinking about what happened on Monday is that um, before that, all prices were kind of like floating around the twenties and thirties, um, which was bad but not absolutely disastrous. But the oil price most people in the industry think that prices need to be somewhere around 10 or below to reach the point where people just automatically shut yeah, in. Yeah, they just go yeah. right. And if you do that, then that is a, I mean, it's a painful, but quite effective way of taking supply off the market. And then at some point that will kind of start to balance the market and things will recover. Right, right. right. And where's, where, so where we have, we've talked a bit, I mean, the OPEC plus, we have this sort of idea that things are, at least the market seems to be suggesting it goes up, well, doubles, but mm-hmm. it's still down from 70 to 20, as you say. But what is the, um, you know, where's where's the United States in this? The, the, the producers in Texas and elsewhere who see, who are clearly uh, hurting, and the president himself in a tweet um, said something about how we need to protect our drillers or our U.S. And, and, you know, after years and years of the U.S. trying to create this sense of oil and energy independence, mm-hmm. um, is at risk, arguably. How do you, how do you think uh, the U.S. part of this sort of transpires? Well, the US, I mean, the U.S., um, part of the reason why there was such a kind of um, massive shock in the U.S. futures on Monday was because the U.S. is a particular type of market where, unlike most of the... Um, most of the rest of the world prices off Brent, um, whereas mm. the US prices off um, West Texas That's intermediate. And the storage capacity, the storage situation in the US is much more tight or much tighter, much um, uh, more problematic as it were, was on Monday. So um, they've got, they've, they've probably got more of a problem in the short term. As to what Trump um can and will do about it uh, that is a pretty difficult question to to answer i mean i i would have there was talk um a couple of weeks ago and well continues to be talk about um texas which is one of the biggest producers in the us kind of gathering together and trying to kind of exercise some form of a quasi opec style 
Right. Um, but I mean, it just doesn't really work. And I mean, it, you just need to look at the market with all, all a, load, a load of different, um, you know, private sector producers. You know, I suppose you can kind of regulate them to kind of say you can you can't produce any more than this, but it's a it's a pretty messy way of doing it, and it's not certain to work either. Yeah. Um, I mean, other than that, I suppose Trump can kind of divert some public resources to bailing out a load of shale firms, but I mean, God knows yeah. whether that. Works. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that, yeah, it does, I mean, there's. You know, it's a business that's built upon the price of a commodity, and you cannot, com- you can do what you can to play with the price of that commodity, but you know, this is this is you know, you can't. You've got um, a situation where people just don't need it. I guess. Lastly, George, do you think that there's, like, are we are we in the new normal in terms of energy use? I mean, are we act or, or oil demand? Are we kind of at that point where you've argued or? over the years and lots of people are arguing that we need to get there anyway to to create a more sustainable um industrial planet are we kind of are we have some of the goals of sustainability and reduced dependence on energy actually been met thanks to you know quite tragically well well, so you can see you know there's there's all sorts of data floating around about um look how much less um co2 is going into the atmosphere because fewer people are driving Uh, and People are saying, you know, well, oh, I can hear birdsong because I can't hear the traffic and all that. I mean, and that's all kind of good in the short term. Um, the, I mean, the, the counterpoint to that is um, what you would usually see when oil prices are really, really cheap is that it's, it's <laughs> oil prices are really, really cheap. And so people will kind of be incentivized to use it and use more of it. And, um, and so from a renewables and sustainability point of view, uh, it's not obvious you know that things won't just snap back when COVID sorts itself out. Um, I personally, I mean, I'm I'm a kind of um, uh, <laughs> uh, optimist on these things and think, well, something to do with you know, if we're going to try and kind of get to net zero as a planet in terms of carbon emissions, we're going to have to kind of um, as a planet and as a people um, kind of have to consume less and um, exercise some kind of restraint um and the most positive thing i can think about about what's going on at the moment is that this is you could see this as a massive trial run for some of the things we might have to do and um and that might be quite that might be a kind of way of being positive about it Um, yeah might not be any more positive than that (laughs) well anyway on that note i wish you a happy 50th uh, or a happy earth day and uh, um, keep at it. Take a break. You know, George, you can't be you're right. You're writing like so many stories in the oil market every day that um, you're going to run out of fuel. Yourself. Of happiness is, is uh, hard work. <laughs> All right. Thank <laughs> you. George. Greetings, Anna. I guess I'm reaching you somewhere in uh, New York City. Yep. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. How are things in Brooklyn? Eh, they're they're bizarre. They continue to be bizarre. Do you hear ambulances still, or is it calming down? Are you able to go outside, take a walk? Yeah, I mean, I, I run, so I have a full face mask that I use while running, um, which is slightly bizarre. But, uh, you know, you see people out, and 
the one thing that you'd still definitely hear is at 7 p.m. every night, everybody claps for the health workers. And clangs and sort of goes outside, yeah. outside on, their, on their terraces and thing. I, uh, yeah, we, we don't quite have that in, in Switzerland, although I think all the church bells go off at around 7 o'clock. That's nice. Yeah, yeah I, I can't imagine running with a mask. Uh, <laughs> it's not ideal <laughs> no 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 um but look uh great to talk to you uh you've written and and looked a lot at some of the uh sort of rescue programs that have been going going on from the u.s government there uh i'm curious about your take on the paycheck protection program the the triple p um which you know, going into last weekend was looks like it was facing a real backlash because lots of well, a few a few um, bad apples were spoiling the basket. Uh, big right. companies that were getting money that you know could have gotten it through other means, capital markets, that kind of thing. That we've seen a couple of uh, well, we've seen at least one instance where a company, uh, Shake Shack, has given right. back ten million dollars, um, and we now have a, a new slug of money that's going to go into this. What's, I mean, do you think this is um, we're in a, in, a, in a position now where, um, you know, the backlash will be effectively, I don't know, muted? Or do you think we're going to this thing is storing up big trouble? I'd say a little bit of both. I think on the one hand, they definitely did try to correct some of the problems of the previous bill. There is some money that is you know, specifically set aside for smaller firms also specifically set aside for smaller lenders, which certain people living in rural areas who might have less access to larger banks, you know, th this may help them get money. So they're, they're definitely trying to help with some of those things. I also imagine that because of the backlash you saw from a number of these public companies that um, were taking some of this aid, I kind of think that probably means you won't see as many trying to do that this time around, um, which will probably also help. Right. Although I would also say, I think that this is not going to be enough. I think that the issue, though, is when you put all of these different stipulations in about where the money can go and who it can and who cannot go, you're also probably going to slow down the process. So on the one hand, it's an improvement. On the other hand, you know, we still need to get money into far more hands. Yeah. I mean, the amount of money that's gone into it is it does look like it's I mean, we don't know how much like sort of excess there was, I mean, or in other words, the demand that was greater than right. the 349 or whatever it was billion that they put out in the, in the original amount. Well, how much are they putting for in the second, in the sort of second round? For the PPP program, I think it's about 310 billion. It is very hard to know exactly how much firms are going to need. And honestly, from the government standpoint, you'd probably rather have firms taking it, maybe even if they don't need it, as opposed to firms, you know, not getting it that need it in the sense of you, it probably makes more sense longer term to just have more money going out, which is why I would probably have argued they should have done a bigger slug right from the get go, as opposed to doing these, you know, bits here and there, because every time you try to push through one of these new bills, you're going to have all of these political arguments and it's going to slow everything down. And really, from no one's perspective, is that a good thing? Right. I mean, I suppose, you know, I had this argument with someone who was uh, a clearly um, a, a Republican, was sort of saying that the, Nancy Pelosi, the House Majority Speaker, was slow. You know, what is she slowing it down for, this, that, and the other thing? And my, I don't really know, but it seems to me when you have um, one branch of Congress or, or one House of Congress uh, run by the Democrats, the other by Republicans that you're always going to have to have some negotiate. I mean, sort of what they're yeah. there to do is to negotiate. Are they not? 
No, I mean, and you're, you're totally right about that. And I think in normal times, you would be very right about that. I think there is a question right now when, you know, you're looking at a crisis where the longer this goes on, where firms aren't able to access money, where people aren't able to access money, the more defaults you're going to have, the more bankruptcies you're going to have, the deeper this recession, potential depression is going to be, the more expensive it's going to be for the government long term. So it's, I'm a little sympathetic to both arguments, because on the one hand, I think that Yes, this is what politicians do. To expect them to do anything else is kind of living in fantasy land. But then yeah. perhaps that's why you shouldn't structure the plan in these small little amounts so that you're going to have these political arguments every single time. Right. You might as well have just done $500 billion to start. Exactly. And, if you need, and with like a $200 billion, almost like an underwriting option, right? Like right. The, extra, the green shoe or something that exactly. you're doing for the rest of the demand. Right. Um, yeah, that wouldn't have been a bad way. But then what about the issue around... Uh, just the fairness, you know, the idea that only the best, you know, the, the sort of best clients of the JP Morgans and yep. other banks that are effectively acting as the conduit between the Small Business Administration and uh, the Treasury to the borrowers. Well, what's your sense of where, I mean, this thing has sort of created a yet another sort of backlash against banks. I mean, I, I, I give you the example of my brother who owns a, who has a, a medical practitioner, pediatrics practice in Utah. They were in on the first day, didn't get in and had all their numbers, everything right up, up, up all of it, you know, perfectly fine is from his perspective. Um, and their banker's perspective also happened to be a JP Morgan or Chase banker. Um, and they didn't get it. And they'll, they'll probably get it in the second one. But there's a sort of sense that like they only want to favor the sort of big customers they already know and which with which they may have even further relationships. And honestly, I can completely understand why the banks would think that, because right. banks are designed to underwrite loans. They're not designed to give grants. And fundamentally, the way this program is designed, these really are supposed to be grants. If you keep people on payroll, you're not going to have to pay the money back. And because these really are supposed to be grants, that's essentially what the government wants them to be. I think designing it the way they did, going through the private banking system, didn't make a tremendous amount of sense because this is not what banks are designed to do. And to ask banks to essentially throw away any type of underwriting standards when this is all just being designed on the fly, the government right. may say one thing tomorrow and then a year from now be like, oh, wait, you gave money to this firm and it turns out that everything they gave you was fraudulent. You know, I can understand why the banks are going to be like, no, we're going to start with the people we actually know. Right. No, it makes, I mean, yeah, you, that, that happens. Let's say we have a new yeah. administration after November, for instance. Um, you know, then all of a sudden people retroactively look at the decisions that they made, and then there's this whole reassessment of what the banks did. Um, and they, you know, it's funny, you talk to the banks, they're all very clear that they were, they, we did not, this is not our fault. <laughs> It's not this whole thing, like for the first not time us, in man. 10 years, we can't say you can't say this is our fault. And yeah. we want we're here. We want to help, um, um, which, uh, of course, as Reagan said, that was like the last thing you ever wanted to hear from the government. Um, but but what? Yeah. So so what's your what's your sense? I mean, how, these are structured as loans that are also grants if they meet certain criteria right. and those criteria being basically you, you pass it through to to, you know, I think 75% of it or something has to be passed through to employees, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's going to be another issue moving forward is how those terms are actually understood, whether firms later you're going to have lawsuits because they're going to say, you know, wait a second, you know, we, we, we didn't fire people and then they're going to say, wait, but you didn't do something else. I mean, it, it, it's going to be tricky. I mean, I think, you know, obviously right now it's better to err on the side of just doing whatever is necessary to try to keep you know, 
firms propped up to try to keep people connected with employers as much as possible. You know, I, I do think we're probably going to have uh, you know, a bit of a mess to clean up afterwards. And, you know, I'm probably a little bit of a broken record here, but I just wonder if this was really the best way to design it or if doing something like other countries did where you were essentially just paying a big portion of, you know, salaries to just ensure, you know, keep people employed as opposed to this kind of convoluted going through the bank. It's a loan, then it becomes a grant. You know, that was really the the best strategy. And there's a fee somewhere along the way, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, the banking system, you could make the case, is a, is a good mechanism for, yeah. for distributing capital in, in the economy. But there is also a thing called unemployment insurance. Which, right. I mean, so if you really wanted to do it, in addition to sort of writing that check that is going to people of certain means, you could have come up with it. You could have just used it through the, the unemployment insurance. Totally. Scheme, I'm... Exactly. I mean, the government, one thing the government is accept, is very good at is just sending people money. Like, they're very good at that. They know how to do that. They have. They don't do that with me, Anna. So I don't know what you're talking about. But, uh, I'm glad they do it with somebody because I certainly send them a fair amount. That's true. That's true. <laughs> right. But, you know, like I, I understand and I think that in a normal circumstance going through, you know, using banks to allocate capital makes a lot of sense. But this is, you know, this isn't normal and this isn't being based on any type of economic fundamentals. It's not being based on creditworthiness. So it fundamentally is a government program that probably should have been done in the simplest, fastest way through, you know, some way through, you know, the IRS, unemployment, whatever, as opposed to. But having said that, we have the program we have. And so, you know, the hope is that this version of it will be slightly better, that you'll be able to get more firms. You won't have as much crowding out. And although, honestly, I would be shocked. I would be truly shocked if they don't have to come in and do at least one or two more of these. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's see. I mean, the demand is uh, was so we don't really know how much greater it was than the supply last time. It's and certainly as we wear this, as this thing wears down further, there's just going to be more and more distress and there's going to be more uh, need for for that capital. But all right. Well, look, Anna, we'll keep uh, I'm, it sounds like this is the story that we'll keep on giving. Definitely. <laughs> Unfortunately, but yes. All right. Stay safe. Keep jogging with your uh, face mask on. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Anna Shemansky, Yuna Galani, and George Hay. And hats off to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Oliver Taslich, Sharon Lamb, and Lee Anderson. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of Vita Sen, and stay healthy.